Hello, my friends. Welcome back. It's the Content Strategy Podcast. It has been a very long time since we have gathered together. And in fact, it's been since December of 2019 when I last interviewed Mr. Rob Mills, who is the superstar content strategist. Rob has since uh, departed Gather Content and in fact is now helping with production of this very podcast, which actually was not planned. It just sort of happened, as did so many things in 2020, because of course I was going to reboot the podcast and instead we had a pandemic. So it's been a really rough year for most of us. And I am happy that there are parts of the world that are coming out on the other side. I know that there are still so many of you who are struggling with this oppressive, stupid disease. And so I hope that vaccine is on its way to you and that you and your family can find help and safety before too long. So on that note, let's talk about some content strategy. I, there, besides the fact, you know, everything else that has changed since December of 2019, a lot has also changed in the field of content strategy. And one of the biggest, most rapid shifts that I frankly have seen in my entire content strategy career has happened under the umbrella of the content design and UX writing practices. This was sort of a, a very active, but sort of more quiet conversation that was happening in a few corners of the internet back in late 2019. And now it has taken over so much of the content strategy channels and conversations. And it's such an exciting time to be in content. In fact, I'm so excited because one of the people who I really give full credit for kind of striking the match that lit this flame of content design with his book, which he co-authored, Writing is Designing, Words in the User Experience, is Mr. Andy Welfley. And Andy is the founder and manager of Adobe's content design practice. I will have you know that when he is not working, he's probably out making his zines about UX writing and poetry or his own podcasts about wooden pencils. Andy is here with me today. Hello. Hey, lovely. Hello. Hi. Christina, thanks for, how thanks are you? for sitting by patiently with my whole big exposition of welcome back to the Content Strategy Podcast. I, I was am... I was so surprised that you mentioned the pencil podcast because do you remember what you said to me and Michael the first time you had like a video chat with us? Was it like, what is wrong with you? No, you were like, no, Andy, I don't want to hear about your pencils. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my hello Andy it's nice to meet you also let's talk about topics that are taboo we're gonna start with the pencils I, I don't know Andy we can talk about your pencils I want we don't have to talk pencils. about pencils we have plenty of other things to talk about Andy I usually at the beginning of this podcast ask people to give me you know like a 90 second overview of tell me how did you come to content strategy and content design and I wonder if you could give me said overview yeah yeah, well, I um, went to school for journalism, as I feel like probably many people in this field did. And I graduated in 2006 when newspapers were laying off like photographers and journalists. And it just was clearly it was not the field to get into at that point. So I pivoted and worked in nonprofit marketing. I worked at an arts nonprofit. And that was around the time when like social media was starting to become a thing. And I started like really figuring out how, you know, how to use that for businesses. And, you know, I may set up a Facebook page and a LinkedIn account and all those, all the things. And I, I really got into like the communication strategy portion of that. 
And that kind of led me to work at a web development agency where I kind of took those skills and then kind of pivoted that to like UX web content strategy. So that's kind of where I became familiar with you and, you know, Aaron Kassane and Jeff Eaton and Sarah Walker Bechter and all the, the web content strategy greats. Did that for a few years and I really loved it. This, is, this was in Indiana. And eventually our mutual friend, Jonathan Coleman, talked me into applying for a job at Facebook where... I, much to my surprise, I I got hired and moved out to the to the West Coast. So worked there for a couple of years, and then this opportunity to Adobe came along to sort of like start this content design practice, and that was really interesting to me. So yeah, that's where I am now. This I've been here about four and a half years, which was longer than I've ever worked in any job before ever. I think that's longer than anyone in the Bay Area has ever worked in any <laughs> I think job you're ever, right. so congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Annie, yeah. tell me a little bit about, I, I would like to start, and I, you know, when people always like to say, what is content strategy? I'm going <laughs> to put the question to you, what is content design? And can you explain the difference to me and our listeners who are like, yeah, what is the difference between, or the relationship, I should say, between content design and UX writing? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's <laughs> that's a loaded question, as you know, right? Like, there's a lot of definitions out there and a lot of people who think about you know these terms differently and there's kind of that whole like you know no no true scotsman idea about like what content strategy is and what content design is but i tend to think of content design as just approaching writing and approaching information and approaching language in an experience in a design methodology. So, you know, what IDEO calls design thinking, what some other people just call thinking, what what we often think of as designing where you're just highly collaborative and it's research research tested and, and validated and iterated on and measured applied to, to words and to writing. And that's generally what I think about when I think about content design. And typically I think about UX writing as is one of the the practices of that, like one of the things you're doing, like one of the things you do as a content designer. And I know there are people who are dedicated, you know, they call themselves UX writers or product writers, and they're probably also still doing, you know, other things, other big things around that UX writing. But I tend to think of UX writing as the, you know, the actual designing with words, the actual like getting in there and and you know creating an experience with language. Does that does yeah. that make sense? Oh yeah. I, and, yeah. you know, I think it's you and Michael Matz, your co-author for Writing is Designing, you really put a flag in the ground when you were, is that right? Is that the right saying? When you were like, writing, my friends, is actually designing. I mean, that's <laughs> the thing that, you know, I mean, and you named it, you named your book that, you know, and that is really saying, look, or maybe it's draw a line in the sand. I don't know. My metaphors get all yeah. mixed up. To, to exactly to your point, you know, that like writing is not just putting pen to paper and thinking about the language and the voice and the tone that we are also thinking about purpose and research and data and user journeys and intention and prioritization and information hierarchy and so on, which is a really big deal. And I, and I like the way that you describe UX writing as a thing that happens during content design or as a part of the content design process, because what I, my concern is UX writing is a thing. It's a standalone thing when in fact it's not, it can't just like any, yeah, Pixel pushing can and should not live outside of a larger design process or a larger design ecosystem. We can't be throwing words around in that way. Yeah. Either. Well, just to, just as a UX designer isn't sort of, people don't call them a box drawer or a prototype maker or something like that, right? Like they have other things they do too. They 
create a strategy, they advocate for that strategy, they have a lot of meetings, they're thinking about navigations and structures as well as the actual like blue buttons that they're putting on a page. That's just one piece of it. So yeah, I think I think content design is like a I think a just yeah, more just holistic title from it. And and actually interestingly at Adobe, our job titles are still all content strategist. We that's mostly just because when I started there, my boss was like Hey Andy, what do you want your title to be? <laughs> when I worked at Facebook, I was a content strategist. So I was like, I don't know, content strategist. And of course, since then, Facebook has moved to content designer as their job titles. But yeah, we're we're on our way. Yeah, well, mo- I mean, what? At least a dozen companies just over just last year were like, oh, yeah. we're content designers now. I mean, and they all wrote big posts about big it. Big medium posts about it. Why? <laughs> That's right. And it yeah. was just it was literally like this ripple effect. And you know what's so interesting is that. I actually remember asking one of the managers at Facebook several years ago, I had an employee go to work there and I was, I was chatting with his manager and I said, why, you know, what you're doing is really content design. Why, why aren't you calling yourselves that? And they said, we really fought for this title of product content strategist and we want to hold on to it. And I think that a lot of that was about wanting to give, you know, it's that branding strategy, right? You put content next to strategy and suddenly, It's like, oh, those two words together, content must have more weight than, quote, just copywriting. Yeah. And so that's why they held on to it for that long. And probably it was a blessing in disguise, I'm going to assume, that you chose that title when you walked through the door. Because, I, you know, like it or not, calling something content strategy over UX writing, for the mind, in the minds of people who haven't maybe heard that term before, it's going to carry a little bit more weight. Absolutely. Unless, of course, they hear content strategy and they think marketing. But let's not go down that road right now. (laughs) That's a whole different podcast and it requires a whole different beverage. So talk to me a little bit then. Okay, so you walk through the door. It's Adobe. You're like, I can do this. And they're like, start a practice. (laughs) Yeah, Start a practice. Not only start a practice, but start a practice in what? So 2017? Yeah, beginning in 2017, I started. about, About how, you know, working with words is design. And it's a giant software company like tell me what that was like yeah it was i mean it was where were they doing with the words that's my question (laughs) but go ahead yeah well i mean i'm sure you've used an adobe product before the they're often just kind of known for pretty big obtuse pieces of writing right like there's a lot of really technical terminology there's some scary error messages written by (laughs) written by engineers like there's so much interesting language in those products and I was absolutely overwhelmed. Like there was just so much to think about and so many so many ways to try to affect it and so many try, ways to start. So I luckily had a lot of a lot of leeway with my my boss who is a director of like centralized design there. Like he he knew this wasn't going to be like some easy I'm going to hire somebody and they're going to come in and fix all the fix everything, right? Like that wasn't the way. So he asked me when I started, he was like, hey, Andy, your first job is to figure out what your job is. And that was pretty pretty big and scary and overwhelming too. <laughs> but at the same time, the way we, we kind of approached it was, you know, I looked for some sort of a product team that A, had like a lot of language in it and B, just connected with a lot of things within like a big ecosystem. So I could just like see see the connection, like the connected tissue and how, how things interacted. So there's a product called the admin console, which if you, let's say you're like the IT admin for Pepsi and you have 2000 designers who need Creative Cloud licenses, you use this tool to sort of distribute them to them. And embedded with that team, 
started talking to the designers and the program managers and the PMs and engineers and try to just get a feel for what the Adobe way is. Like, how does Adobe make software? And then they were really game to just experiment and try some things. So I just sort of like started plugging in. I had a lot of one-on-ones with designers and PMs and people who I needed to talk to and just started gradually trickling in suggestions and changes and philosophies. And I always tried to kind of back up the changes that I was making with with rationale, with the things that I was talking about. And I, I was very uncomfortable talking about my work and rationalizing it and trying to show value at first, but that's something that, you know, it's a muscle, right? You have to kind of get better at doing that as you go. So eventually felt like I established a process pretty well after about six months. And then I kind of turned my, my role away from being like an individual contributor there and more as like an evangelist role. I started looking for meetings of people, right? Like a big design manager meeting and or a you know big meeting of Creative Cloud PMs and just developed a slide deck that says, hey, this is what content strategy is and you know in, in this particular definition of it, here's what I do, here's why you need it, here's how we can help. So help me help me find resources to get headcount. And uh, yeah, so that led to about after about nine months after starting there, I got couple more headcount and I hired, I think you know Sarah Smart, who is a very smart person, and my coworker Marissa, they started. And just kind of slowly built on that and then built on that. And uh, we're still like so far away from being able to cover every product and really bringing the practice like throughout all, all of Adobe, but we have like some big strategic ones covered and we're at about eight people now. You know, these stories of, I walked through the front door to start content designer, content strategy practice at this giant company, I, they all start that way with one person. And it just blows my mind. So yeah. that is that is, that is quite a story I, that you tell. I love those, those stories. I talked when I, you know, when this came up at Adobe, when the opportunity came up, I actually reached out to, do you, do you know Alain McKenzie, who was the first Shopify content strategist? I do. Yeah, I she's... Yeah, she's really great. She gave me a lot of really good tips and she talked to me about kind of her origin story. I talked to Sarah Kinsella Marks, who was the first one who came to Facebook. It was, yeah, it was really helpful. And I, I really appreciated having like just a really good foundation of leaders who kind of forged this path. Yeah, that's fantastic. So one of the things that I think you are still kind of working, at least from my understanding in our past conversations, that you're really working on beyond just here, let us demonstrate value. Because of course, the minute they finally, that the light bulb goes off, suddenly one person is supporting six different product teams. <laughs> we all know that story. But one of the things that I think that from my understanding that you've really been trying to kind of communicate or share out is how important it is that content strategists at Adobe are working directly within their design teams and design systems versus just, you know, sort of getting called for the content later. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that at Adobe? Yeah. So the the organization that I work within, I, I think I mentioned before, my design director also oversees some of our centralized design practices. So like Spectrum, our design system. And we have a team of brand designers who design workflow icons and brand illustrations and, and the little, you know, the little PS mnemonic that you see um, like in some of our icons. So they, they do that and they're all kind of service organizations, right? Like somebody can file a JIRA ticket saying, hey, I need a, 
workflow icon that means this and would ideally represent this. And it goes into a queue and they take it and they, they run with it. And I think a lot of people kind of assumed that was the way we were going to be engaging as well, because we, you know, we were small. We reported through like through a, you know, a central org within within Adobe Design, instead of like directly to the product teams. And I really fought and still fight pretty heavily against that, just because to really do this work, just like just like a designer, you need to be able to you know, build relationships with the people involved. You have to really, especially with our t very technical tools, you have to develop sort of a subject matter expertise and just understand what it is you're writing. And it's really hard to kind of like intimately get familiar with that across the board. So, so all of those things take time and I really hesitate to like engage on a team for like less than six months, right? Like we've hired contractors or, you know, we've embedded short, short term on some stuff, but six months is really what it takes to really get up to speed, I think. So I, I understand and I've heard from a lot of other companies that that sort of, that that model can, that there are pluses to it and that there are, mi there are minuses to it. And I, I recently appeared on a clubhouse of all things in a clubhouse room with the fantastic Dominique Ward from Atlassian to talk about content ops and content mm. ops as a part of or as adjacent to uh, design ops. And one of the things that she was talking about is it's pretty well established that, you know, every organization when it comes to design has sort of like a path to maturity, right? And that part of that path to maturity is ensuring that design teams are embedded throughout different kind of business lines or throughout the business versus just, you know, sort of one centralized service organization. Can you talk to me about like, where do you see in ideally, where do you see content design and strategy services, or even as a function sitting within a content ops function, where do you see that sort of growing within the enterprise? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Like I, I think that it could be way different consider like depending on the size of the team right so we we're a team of 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 eight right now uh we're about to hire a ninth we have a couple people who don't report to me but still work very closely with us that we consider part of the team so we have about 10-ish people and we are big enough i think to have a little mini centralized function within it right like we Jess Sattel, who is our content strategist embedded with our Spectrum Design System team, also oversees a lot of our central content strategy projects. So if we're doing standardization work or if we're like taking some work we did on, let's say, one product and are trying to scale it bigger, build it into the design system, uh, she t typically oversees that. So she is kind of our little mini centralized person. But at the same time, like that, she is she is one human, and we have so much of that work to do. So I think that like we we generally find that about like 15, 20% of our time, we want to try to spend working on that centralized stuff. But organizationally, and interestingly, this is a talk that I I did among a small group discussion at Confab this year. We talked a lot about growing and kind of nurturing teams, and we talked a little bit about the like you know distributed model where content designers embed on product teams. You know, they, they as well as other designers report up through the design manager versus a centralized model where like Adobe has, where all of us sit on one centralized team and we have like dotted lines that go to those like pods of design teams. So a big, so some ad advantages to a distributed model. I think that, you know, you can get much stronger alignment with product strategy, right? Like you are, you are embedded with the folks who are 
downloading this information from from the business and working on the strategy. It's also easier to focus on developing subject matter expertise. Like if I am, you know, sitting with the folks who are designing Premiere Pro, like digital video editing products all day, chances are I'm going to be able to, you know, develop a better subject matter expertise there. But but also it's it has some challenges, right? Like it's harder to align between teams for like all of those connected connective efforts, right? Like all those centralized projects. It's, unless you have somebody sort of like really proactively rallying you, it can be harder to do that. And honestly, I think it's harder to grow and progress in your career when your manager isn't also a content designer, right? Like it's like, even even though content designers are designers, there are some differences in the skills that you're trying to build and the way that you're thinking about your career and the way that you're collaborating with people. So. To me, there are more advantages to the centralized model, which is you have that strong alignment for style guides and design system level stuff. It's easier to reallocate resources when you need to. So if you know you're staffing up some new big push for the company, and then all of a sudden everybody's like, "Ah, eh, <laughs> we don't need that anymore." It's easier just to move people around, reassign people. And of course, it's easier to manage careers that way. But I mean, but there are still some challenges too, right? Like I think. This is something a lot of centralized models, centralized content strategies face, where it's harder to go deeper and really focus on some product work because you have, you have all these other obligations too. You have sort of like your content strategy team, you have your product team, and maybe you have more than one product team. We try really, really hard to limit that, but sometimes that happens, right? So it's harder to focus, and you're just. I think it's even harder. You just have an extra layer of abstraction that prevents you from getting involved earlier and more often, which is always a challenge. Just, I just drill into people's head, you can't involve us too early or too often. So yeah, that's those are some of the challenges that I've outlined there. And generally, I think a centralized model works best for us. If we get really, really big, I think we would have to kind of like break that out a little bit. We're not there yet, but for sure. So an interesting thing that you kind of mentioned sideways is that when your manager is not a content strategist or a content designer, it can make things a little bit more challenging. You're like the manager for content strategists and content designers. Isn't that correct? So far, <laughs> I'm yes. trying to be. So, so talk to me. So your boss is not a content strategist or designer, but at the same time, it sounds like you've had just extraordinary sponsorship and support from leadership for the work that you're doing. But talk to me a little bit about how you have referred to yourself as a reluctant manager. Uh, talk to me a little bit about about what that means and and how what it's been like growing a team. You know, with you walk through the door as a content strategist, and now suddenly you're a manager responsible for establishing, you know, a bunch of like career paths for for folks who are looking to you for new opportunities and and growth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is something that I'm trying to articulate a little bit more and kind of put into put into words and think about a lot harder. But I mean, really it comes down to managing the careers of people is really, really scary. <laughs> and it's like a, what am I trying to say? Like a challenge that I am honored to, to have, but also like, I really want to make sure is I'm doing right. We, so, so when I started, I was, you know, I, I started thinking about the practice and I was like growing, developing the practice. And at one point we got to the point where we needed a people manager. And originally that was, I was just like, I don't think that's me. I don't think I'm, can be sort of in charge of people and in charge of careers. And, you know, at Adobe and at other organizations too, there's, there's paths, there's kind of parallel paths, right? Like you can be a, you can be an individual contributor, you can be an IC and still, 
progress up the chain to senior and to principal and affect big things. And you can be a manager and you can kind of move up that chain and go from manager to senior manager to director or whatever. And that's generally fine. But it really like didn't, it doesn't really shake out that way. I think when you're still establishing your practice, like you're, you're still like your people are your practice. And it kind of became clear that if I wanted to continue trying to steer the practice and advocating for content design within Adobe, I also needed to sort of manage people and be in charge of, of that practice and how that goes. So I stepped into the role. I My coworkers at the time, I don't think anybody else was like <laughs> wanted that responsibility. So I, I became became a people manager and I'm, I mean, learning so much about it every day. So a really good book by Julie Shu from formerly a Facebook design manager called The Making of a Manager, which is really, really good. And just talks about in so many words, certain leadership and kind of like managing up and, you know, emotional vulnerability. It's really interesting. I've really consumed that. And I try to approach it with, you know, honesty and transparency and <laughs> humility. But of course, sometimes, sometimes that's hard too. But I'm still, still super figuring this out. You know, I've owned my own company for almost 20 years. I too am still figuring this out. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Of all the, of everything that I have done over the last almost 20 years, all of it, I still, to this day, the most difficult, scary thing for me is managing people. And I think that all of my lovely, extraordinary patient employees would suggest that perhaps management is something is is you know a, a thing that maybe a ceo shouldn't be doing directly i don't know mostly i just try to leave them alone and get out of their way but yeah. i i so deeply respect and admire any practitioner however senior saying yeah i do want to go this route because it is a whole different set of muscles and needs to be taken seriously and i do think that especially in sort of large sprawling enterprises, well, I guess in any size organization, we can see people who were sort of thrust into the management role without A, really understanding what they were getting into and B, being provided the resources and support that are necessary to really care, to your point, to really care for people's careers within, within an organization. So I just deeply admire that you kind of were like, okay, I'll do it. And, you know, stepped up and have, and have taken it with such responsibility and humility, frankly. So I just, I just wanted to acknowledge, like, it's not easy to be a content strategist and be like, yep, okay, now I'm a manager. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big deal. Yeah. I There's one other thing that I want to make sure that we touch on before our time is up, because I also feel strongly that this is this is indicative of your, of your leadership, not only at Adobe, but also within the larger content strategy community, which is that you are really stepping up to talk openly about equitable terminology in tech. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that means to you. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something that I think has been simmering for a long time, right? Like the idea of these, this language that we've, that has been present in tech for, for decades that, you know, is, has metaphorical roots in oppression, right? Like there's, there's the idea of like, you know, two, two databases, one, one is like the parent and one is the child and they call it master and slave sometimes. And there's, terms like blacklists and whitelists, which have, you know, real life origins that were kind of rooted in oppression. There's the idea of redlining, which is very much, sounds very much like, you know, when you would draw literally red lines through neighborhoods to keep 
to keep people of color out. And I think it kind of came to a head last summer. A lot of people started talking about this and, and we really started taking a look at Adobe, like where this stuff exists. And, you know, I, I searched the, oh, the Adobe support forums just for the word slave. Cause you know, I thought the master slave metaphors were very outdated and you just wouldn't see them. And I found like 300 examples <laughs> of those words throughout. So this is, I mean, this is something we, we, created a set of inclusive UX writing guidelines for for our design system documentation. I'll, I'll make sure we have a link to it. Sarah Smart on my team really, really spearheaded that. But one of the things that I noticed, I noticed a lot of people talking about it, but I didn't notice a lot of people kind of like talking together about it, discussing it and coordinating. So I approached Jess Sand, who, has she been on your show before? Not yet. Yeah, well, spoilers. Stay um, tuned. So Jess uh, manages the content and UX Slack community, which has just a bananas number, like 11,000 people in it. And she kind of allowed me to, to set up an anti-racist language channel. And it's, I mean, it's since really taken off. There's like 3,300 people in here, but it started with me and somebody from Shopify and somebody from Intuit and somebody from Intercom and just like, groups of people saying like, hey, we're also like identifying some of these words. Like, do you think that like the word white label is problematic? Or do you think that when we talk about light mode and dark mode, do you think that's problematic? And we all just sort of discussed it and tried to come up with just some frameworks, ways to think about it. And it's, I mean, it's certainly not like some huge, really centralized coordinated effort, but it was a really, I think a really good conversation to have in that time. And it's something, yeah, we are trying to trying to find and correct every day in our own products. Just because it's like, it's not only is it just doing the right thing, like trying to find language that doesn't actively harm others, but sometimes you can actually provide more clear language, right? Like with whitelist and blacklist, I think Google suggested a replacement in their developer documentation for like allow list and block list. And that's fine. That kind of like gets it out of that route, but... The way that we went is we were suggesting instead of saying, you know, like a one-to-one replacement for whitelist, blacklist, instead just say like, hey, these are blocked IP addresses or these are allowed usernames or things like that, where we actually get the noun of the thing that, you know, it's whitelisting or blacklisting into the title, into the, the name of the thing. And that I think is actually providing a clearer, better term for these things. So I just really see... It is an opportunity not only to yeah to be more equitable but also be clear, which is the whole reason we're 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 there, right? Yeah, I think if anything has become clear to me about the larger, wider content strategy community over the last year, I mean, I have always said I work with the best people. Content strategists are the best people. Like they are inherently, you know, centered on user needs and helping people complete tasks online and making sure they get the content that they need when and where and how they need it. But what has also just really become visible and apparent is that the content strategy community is also deeply concerned about being inclusive, about being accessible, about creating area, you know, places of safety, about lifting others up and about just making things more accessible and clear to all. And this is, this is, it seems like a simple tactical thing. Oh, let's just go and, and scrub this language, the press of terms. 
And to some people, it might seem like, oh, why are we wasting our time doing this when we've got so much, such bigger fish to fry, right? But this is, these parts and pieces come together from all different parts of the community. And I think that shining lights on these areas where we can make improvements that carry so many different benefits for so many different people within different parts of an organization or within different parts of the larger field. I just, I'm yeah. just so excited to see how quickly those tides are rising, I guess and, is what I'm trying to say. And it's not just us in UX. Like, I, I don't know if you watch HDTV at all, but there is, you know, there's so many shows about renovating homes and people buying homes and walking through them. And I've, I've really noticed this shift in people saying, instead of master bedroom, people are talking about main bedrooms and, you know, the, the largest bedroom, things like that. I think that's a really just kind of indicative of how there's a really, I'll have to find a link for your show notes, but there's a really good article out there about how architecture firms have really kind of taken this up upon themselves. And a coworker of mine, who's a design manager for Premiere Pro, which is our um, digital video editing app, has kind of taken this to heart and spent some time with our team and has taken all of these various like master descriptors, like, you know, master sound file and, and you know, master controls and, and really found better and more descriptive ways to name them, source, source files and, you know, main controls, things like that. That's not real examples, but yeah, he's done just a really good job of taking that to heart and making a change in the industry. Because in a lot of ways, a lot of our products are industry leading and when we can change them, you know, things follow. And that's a really, I think it's an important, we're, we're in a very important place and we can't sort of like take these, these matters trivially, trivially or lightly. Andy, I so very much appreciate your helping me reboot the Content Strategy Podcast for 2021. It is always, always such a pleasure to speak with you. And I always learn something new every time yeah. we talk. Welcome um, back. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Welcome back to all We're of us. We're back, right? baby. Yeah. Exactly. Once again, Andy is the founder and manager of Adobe's content design practice. He's a co-author, along with Michael Metz, of Writing is Designing. You can find Andy on Twitter at A. Wellfley or on the web at Andy dot WTF. <laughs> All right, Andy, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me.